Welcome to the National Working Waterfront Podcast, a collaboration between the National Working Waterfront Network and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. On this podcast, I invite guests to chat with me about topics related to the working waterfront, an important driver of the blue economy and development along our waterfronts. I am your host, Ashley Bennis, a senior resilience planner with Half Associates in Corpus Christi, Texas. For this episode, we are going to continue on this journey that we started in our last episode, exploring this country's resilient and sustainable commercial fishing industry. On last episode, we had Monique Combs, a director of the community programs with the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. She helped provide context about the commercial fishing industry along the East Coast and what standards go into maintaining a sustainable industry that will help us keep fishing stocks around for future generations. Since fishing communities have such a high dependency on natural resources for their livelihood, this industry is constantly being challenged due to the fluid and ever-changing nature of the environment. Along with climate and natural resources, the industry also has persistent concerns over coast accessibility, updating port infrastructure, graying of the fleet, shifting fishery habitats, top-down regulatory policies, development pressures, and on top of all of that, there's an extremely high cost of entry compared with other industries. Graying of the fleet in particular has created labor shortages and put a strain on the industry. But it has also led to diversification of the types of individuals getting involved in a variety of new programs around the country that encourages youth to participate and get into the industry. After some downtime that included some job transitions and a fantastic conference put on by the Executive Committee of the National Working Waterfront Network and the Urban Harbors Institute at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, I am back with two special guests joining us from Alaska and Wisconsin. They're gonna give us a rare glimpse into two vastly different and relatively unknown regions in our country and the marginalized perspectives that are not often realized. My first guest is from Alaska, where she was the director of the Alaska Sea Grant College Program until 2018. In this position, she focused on the sustainability of Alaska's fishing communities. She has also been a commercial salmon fisherman in Bristol Bay for decades with her family. Paula, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me today, Ashley. So I gave just a very brief introduction, but can you take a second to kind of introduce the audience to who you are and what your background is in the commercial fishing industry? Uh, Sure, sure thing. Um, I am talking to you today from Homer, Alaska, which is... um, a fishing community, a coastal community about 350 miles down the road from Anchorage, Alaska. And um, uh, I've lived here for uh, several years. Uh, Before that, I was in Anchorage for a long time and was the director of Alaska Sea Grant, as you mentioned. I've been part of Alaska Sea Grant for many years as a marine Uh, advisory extension agent out in Bristol Bay um, as a coastal community development specialist and uh, did a lot of work during that whole period on several issues that we're facing here in Alaska related to uh, the next generation of fishermen and fisherwomen in the state um, and also thinking about and working on ways to keep all of our fishing communities in Alaska uh, viable and sustainable. Um, And as you mentioned, 
I started commercial fishing uh, actually on the coast of Maine in 1979, I think, uh, on a on a herring saner, and then migrated to Seattle, fished, fished out of uh, Port Townsend in the Straits of Juan de Fuca for a few years uh, as a salmon gill netter, and then was lured up to Alaska um, after graduate school and started commercial fishing on the Yukon River for five years. And then our family bought into the uh, Bristol Bay salmon fishery. So this was actually our 35th season in Bristol Bay. And amazingly, our our largest catch in 35 years this year. So um, that's our history. We've run a little direct marketing operation as well and sold fish um, sort of as a uh, community-supported fishery um, to folks in Anchorage and Fairbanks. Well, congratulations. That sounds exciting. Um, and we've been hearing all types of different type stories from fishermen and fisherwomen about um, catch and catchment size and stuff. So that's that's exciting that you're having you're having a good year. So. I think a lot of people probably don't have a good idea of what the fishing community, commercial fishing industry is like in Alaska, because it seems like this far off state, just it's part of the U.S., but it just seems so far away. Can you give us a little bit of kind of setting the foundation of what is the industry like in Alaska or what kind of... um, activities and and stuff happened there in regards to commercial fishing. Yeah, I could take an hour doing that, um, but I'm sure (laughs) about 65% of the seafood that is harvested in the United States comes from Alaska. Uh, And so it is a, it is a big industry here. It is considered one of the, I think healthiest industries in the country and one of the best managed um, uh, and and a very diverse industry that um, really people from the southernmost communities, Metlakatla, Ketchikan, all the way up to Nome, uh, above the Arctic Circle, and then out um, on the Aleutian chain to on Alaska Dutch Harbor, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people participate in the fishery. Many of them come from out of state, from other locations to participate in the fishing industry. And um, uh, one of the things that's interesting is that there's a a lot of federally managed fisheries. So those are fisheries that take place from three miles offshore. um, And they are really expansive, large boat fisheries, the Pollock fishery, where you, you know, if you go to McDonald's and get fish and chips up and you'll get Pollock um, in those sandwiches, uh, Pacific cod, uh, flatfish, uh, different kinds of rockfish are all harvested in federal waters as well as Pacific halibut, uh, black cod or sable fish. Um, And then uh, there are a number of fisheries managed by the state of Alaska, um, and those are coastal fisheries, primarily salmon and herring and crab. Um, and then the salmon fishery itself is is expansive. It starts in, uh, as I said, in the southernmost part of the state and goes all the way along the coastline. Um, and that fishery tends to be um, 
smaller boats and more local participation. Um, so there is some kind of commercial fishery active in the state of Alaska 11 out of 12 months out of the year. And um, it is a it is a very uh, big um, contributor to the U.S. Uh, uh, economy as well as the state of Alaska economy and um, uh, a huge, huge employer, probably maybe there are 50,000 commercial fishermen and another 30,000 people that work in the seafood processing industry here. Uh, I think there's about 175 discrete seafood processing operations across our coast. So it, it is, um, I like think of Alaska as a fishing state and Alaskans as fishing people. Um, in addition to our commercial harvest, we uh, have many, many, many Alaskans that depend on seafood for, uh, for food and for recreation. Um, Homer, where I am, is a, just a, a buzz of charter operations with folks going out uh, to catch halibut from all over the country. And um, and then many parts of the state, uh, very high dependence on seafood for subsistence purposes. Um, uh, some parts of the state up north where there is an Alaska Native community, you know, maybe 200 pounds of seafood per person is harvested every year. That's a lot. That's a lot of seafood. I, I, I appreciate that context and even in giving, you know, kind of tying it back to these everyday things that... Um, consumers are used to, like saying the pollock that we see in our sandwiches at fast food that comes from there. So that's great because I think there's been such a disconnect between people and where their seafood comes from. So that's um, that's amazing. So it's certainly one of the biggest, if not the biggest industries in Alaska. It is the largest private employer in Alaska. Um, you know, the oil industry is a big industry up here and, and pumps a lot of income into our state. But, uh, but fisheries and seafood processing is really the employer in terms of numbers of individuals benefiting as a workplace. Yeah. So what are some of the biggest challenges that, that Alaska um, working waterfronts are facing and, and the fisheries industry is facing. And this could be related to climate change, but also regulations, access, graying of the fleet. What are some of those big challenges? Yeah, I think um, I, I tend to think about it as, you know, three legs to the stool really that are critical to, um, to us here. And, you know, the first one is having a healthy resource. The second one is having strong markets for our seafood. And then the third one is having access to the, to be able to participate in a fishery. And um, for Alaska right now, I think um, concern about resource health is really, really revolves around climate change and the uncertainties of climate change, um, how that will affect our fish resources. Uh, for example, um, uh, salmon, there are five species of salmon and the, uh, the salmon that I referred to in Bristol Bay that was, uh, we were very successful in our harvest this summer in our family is the Bristol Bay sockeye salmon run. And it is the largest wild sockeye salmon run in the world. Um, 
This year, it was the largest sockeye salmon run in history in Bristol Bay since 1883. Um, the, the run was 76 million fish into, into Bristol Bay with a harvest of about 55 million fish. And um, the, you know, that shattered the records, the records book. So you could say um, that climate change is, is good for sockeye salmon, right? But meanwhile, um, another very valuable species uh, in the salmon world is king salmon, Chinook salmon. And across the state from, uh, from Cook Inlet, Anchorage area where I live, all the way up uh, to the Yukon River and Norton Sound, um, uh, the king salmon uh, stocks have been in really steep decline. And um, no one really knows why that is, but because because it's the same in other in many different places across the state, it sort of makes you feel like it must be an ocean thing, right? It must be whatever's happening to king salmon is shared among uh, the kings that are all in the ocean together when they're in their um, saltwater stage of their lifespan. So whatever's working well for sockeye salmon might not be working so well for king salmon. And that could be changes in food distribution or somehow temperatures impacting uh, whatever, whatever's happening out in the ocean. And, you know, really um, very difficult to, to find the answers to that question. Uh, I think there's concerns about um, other species that go up and down too. And, you know, will climate change, um, will species move north? Will their, will their food sources move north? Um, will temperature impact them? And all of those things certainly seem possible. And there's definitely changes, changes in the uh, ocean and the freshwater environment. So I'd say, you know, number one, people are have, are anxious about what climate change might mean to the health and future of our resources, our fishing resources. Um, the the other two legs of the stool, you know, markets. Uh, I I think we do pretty well in Alaska uh, with market response, and of course, markets are always constantly changing. Um, as the world progresses, and this is, you know, Alaska seafood go into a, a global market. Um, one of the things that Alaska has done over the years has been to invest in the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute. And that is paid for primarily with contributions from the seafood industry uh, privately. And ASME, ASME, as it is known, has really done, I think, a good job of of selling the concept that Alaska seafood are high quality seafood and that if you buy seafood from Alaska, you know it's going to come from a pristine environment that's well managed. The fisheries are not over overfished and um, and that that just basic uh, message that has been has been pushed around the country and around the world, I think, is number one, really accurate, but number two has been uh, very successful um, in, in ensuring that, that we are able to respond to market demand around the world. So that one I would say is, 
less of an issue for Alaskans right now. And then, but the third one, access to the resource is something that, that I've thought a lot about and I'm, I worry about because, um, the work that we did at Alaska Sea Grant showed that the average age of a commercial fisherman in Alaska is about 58. And that's not a particularly sustainable number. Um, you probably want it to be younger, right? 40, 35, something like that. So what does that say that says that younger people are not entering the fishery at the same level as um, some of the older fishermen? So that means it's not sustainable. And and why is that? There's lots of different reasons, but one of the uh, one of the key reasons is that most of the access uh, to commercial fisheries in Alaska is expensive. It's something that can be bought and sold on the open market. And as a fishery is valuable, uh, for example, Bristol Bay, um, very valuable fishery this year, the cost of entry into that fishery um, increases to reflect that. And that, that can, you know, that can be a barrier for young people who are trying to get in. So that piece about access to the fishery is another area that I think we have need to work on and understand better in our state. Definitely. And, and from our previous conversations, um, we talked about in all over this country, access to the waterfront, just in general, just physical access has been a huge issue. But uh, it sounds like in Alaska, that's not one of the things that you guys have to have to be concerned about, right? Yeah, no, yeah, not so much. Not so much. I mean, here in Homer, uh, we have on our working waterfront, uh, we have, as I mentioned, lots of charter boats taking recreational sport fishermen out. We have a lot of commercial fishing vessels in the harbor. Um, we have, uh, uh, on the other side of the, of the bay, we have numerous oyster farmers and a few new seaweed farmers, um, lots of just personal use uh, boats. And then we have some industrial industrial use along the waterfront and, you know, restaurants and that kind of thing. But it, there really hasn't been one dominant uh, feature and there hasn't been this push to build homes along the waterfront and take up the waterfront. We have 30, we have 34,000 miles of coastline up here. So that, that helps with that particular issue. Um, there is a, uh, on the road, there's very limited road system in this state and between Anchorage and Homer, um, there is, you know, strife between allocation of commercial and sport fishermen. And that one is, that one's a bit of a struggle, but I don't think compared to many other states that access to the working waterfront is not, uh, not one of the top issues up here. Not felt as much. Yeah. Um, and, and so back to the very interesting topic about, you know, aging of the fleet, you know, graying of the fleet is a term used. And um, that's certainly an issue all over the place. People are noticing that the type of people working in the industry is aging out and there's not younger people coming in to replace them. And barrier of entry is, is huge. But are there programs or resources that um, Alaska or the state or fisheries are working on to capture a different audience like youth 
um, in particular, uh, the younger generation? Yeah, I, one of the one of the uh, programs that Alaska Sea Grant has had a lot of success with is called the Alaska Young Fishermen's Summit, and that's a three day statewide uh, leadership um, business focused uh, event that brings new fishermen that are not necessarily thinking about becoming commercial fishermen, but are young new fishermen. So they have invested, they have permits, they have boats, they're out there catching fish. But, uh, but fishing, of course, is a very complex business. You have to understand the regulatory system. You have to understand um, how to keep your crew members safe, how to ensure your boat. Uh, you have to be able to assess whether or not you want to expand into a new fishery or whether you want to sell out or whether you want to market your own fish. Um, you have to be able to understand what's happening with markets. And so I think the complexity of being a commercial fisherman has really grown over the last several decades. Um, and that means that if you are a commercial fisherman, you can't only just know how to drive a boat and put a net in the water and catch fish. You have to, uh, you have to be able to run it as a small business. And um, the purpose of the Young Fisherman Summit was to help out with all the parts of running a fishing business outside of actually catching the fish. So that's certainly um, one way to uh, support the concept of professionalizing the fleet and helping these young fishermen, young business owners to um, have some skills to be a little bit more successful going forward. Um, and then there's lots of other, there's lots of other um, small programs that are out there trying to address this, um, this issue, because if many of our, especially some of our, uh, very small Alaska Native communities along the Bering Sea coast and uh, through Southeast. Um, if there's only three or 400 people that live in a community and um, permits and are leaving or people are aging out of the fishery, then young people don't have an opportunity to go fish for an uncle or a grandfather or an aunt or, and so it's really hard to visualize yourself as a commercial fisherman if you don't have some kind of a way to get started. Um, so there's, you know, efforts going on around the state to try and um, increase opportunities for young people to uh, participate in the fishery so that so that that um, that opportunity is available to them. That's perfect. And and when we talked previously, you had mention something that I think is very unique to um, to the states is that uh, there are efforts or uh, I guess I would say efforts to help those that are of lower income or different background levels to be able to access and, and enter into the industry. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, it wasn't so much that they were low income. It was that these were, um, so if you look at a map of Alaska, the Bering Sea coast, you know, the Bering Sea is really large and 
you know, that's where the big, big boats go and harvest pollock and all these other ground fish species. And they make a lot of money and, uh, um, you know, big, big boats that, so the, the people that live along the coastline in small villages, you know, Tuntutuliak and Kipnuk and, uh, Ekak and, uh, you know, Hooper Bay. I mean, they just, they don't have access to these large boats. I mean, these are, these are in companies that come from, you know, primarily Seattle or other places. So the, the notion was um, how do we, because these are federal fisheries that are happening right offshore of all of these small communities, how do we share the wealth with those, that region of the state? And so what was developed gosh, I want to say 35 years ago, was this concept of uh, community development quotas. And uh, it is a really unique method that I think only Alaska has. I, I don't know of any place else in the world that does something quite similar, but it basically lumped these groups, these communities into six groups and gave them access to a percentage of the catch from the Bering Sea. So... I think it's 12% of all of the pollock and all of the, the crab and all of the cod that are caught in the Bering Sea uh, goes back to these six groups of communities who then use that money to um, support smaller fishermen, to pay for scholarships, to build uh, infrastructure in their communities. And it's, uh, it's been a really um, successful uh, way to kind of give back to these smaller communities uh, at least some benefit from the, uh, the uh, really amazing am- amount of resources and the wealth that's connected with that out in the Barren Sea. Yeah, th- thank you for helping me fill in those gaps there. Um, I Yeah, no, when you told me about that, it, I was very excited and I don't think I've heard about that anywhere else. And I'm hoping that uh, maybe other regions can learn about that and maybe think about how they can help people to to enter because you know it's such a high high barrier yeah the, uh, you know the magnus and stevens fisheries conservation and management act that you know is the guiding document for all of our federal fisheries in the united states has a something called national standard 8 which does look at community benefits from federal fisheries and does open up the opportunity for communities to make the case that um, a fishery needs to provide some benefit to them as a nearby community. And, and uh, I think that's a nice part of the, uh, the Magnus and Stevens Act um, that uh, can be useful to fishing communities around the country. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And um and because of some of these things that Alaska has been taking on for the past few decades, um, have you noticed a change in the types of people working in the industry or changes in the, the type of actors involved in either out on the boats catching or even processing or new businesses that have popped up around that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know that that's really been studied in detail, um, but I'm probably old enough to have a few observations. I mean, one one observation is that 
definitely the communities uh, that are involved in the CDQ programs, um, all of these rural communities have become much more sophisticated in terms of uh, ownership in some of these larger vessels. And so some of the local residents will work on the vessels, but even if they don't work on them, they are buying into them. And so that gives them long-term control of fishing operations out in the Bering Sea. So that certainly creates a sustainability that's um, really nice to see. And it's nice to see Alaskans uh, pulling that ownership away from uh, or buying into or changing the ownership or percentage of ownership uh, from uh, from big companies outside of Alaska to uh, ownership, at least in a substantial part, by Alaskans. And I guess I, I think that's good because Alaskans need employment, but it's also um, if you live here, you tend to be uh, very aware of potential impacts to the environment and maybe a bit more careful about it. Um, and beyond that, I would say that I, you know, I certainly do see many young people uh, involved in fishing up here and many of them are women. Um, in Homer, I know a, a good handful of women who are running their own boats now. Uh, um, I think that uh, fishing in Alaska is considered an occupation that can be done in conjunction with other occupations. If you're a teacher or you're able to get some time off in the summer, a lot of the salmon fisheries are seasonal. So that's a good, a good mix. And that can bring uh, the next generation in. And, you know, we have a lot of fish up here still, so it is actually a, a good livelihood. It's a, a way to make a good income. So, uh, and I think the other the other thing that's interesting up here is that the management, um, the, the the relationship between harvesters, fishermen, and managers has always been pretty good up here. There's always been. Um, uh, a very conservative bent to management in this state. People are used to quotas. They're used to seasons. They are in touch with managers. They uh, interact with them on a whole bunch of different public process levels. Uh, and I think there's a mutual respect that um, has been very integral in the ability to keep our fisheries strong up here. And, and maybe that's because we're a really young state, um, or maybe that's because the commercial fishermen up here are often um, come from somewhere else. Maybe they have other occupations. Maybe, they've, um, uh, maybe they're not five, fifth generation fishermen. Maybe they're new to the field and that leads them to be more open. But in general, the the relationship between the fisheries managers, both the federal and the state, and the fishermen and seafood processors is pretty positive. That's a that's great to hear, and it also helps transition into what I wanted to ask you about next. As far as um, here in the U.S., you know, we have a sustainable fishing, you know, commercial fishing industry because of their regulations because of how much care we take in trying not to overfish and 
trying to um, use best practices. And I was wondering if you could help us understand what the regulatory scene in Alaska has been. Um, and it, I mean, has that evolved? Has that something been different and then evolved with time as far as how the fisheries are managed and, and who are who is involved in managing it? Yeah, sure. Um, so this, the, the state fisheries are managed. So the salmon fisheries, there's 26 different salmon fisheries around the state. Uh, they're all managed by uh, the State Department of Fishing, the Alaska Department of Fishing Game, uh, ADF&G, which is what it's called. And uh, the state has a really robust public process, um, public, pu- public participation process. They have uh, this huge number of advisory committees that are just local input committees that meet all over the state um, and provide input to a regulatory process that's um, that kind of rotates every few years. So in Bristol Bay, where I fish, the regulatory process is reviewed and potentially changed every three years. So when that happens, we fishermen in Bristol Bay will get together and say, we'd like to change this. We'd like to change that. And there's a system to propose that um, to that body. And then they make decisions and the, uh, it's called the board of fisheries. The board of fisheries is not a, is not a legislative body. It is outside of the state legislature. And that, um, that is something that I think Alaskans hold really dear to their heart for these state fisheries is to not have them be, too tied to the state legislature. So that's been a, that's been a positive thing. There's, you know, there's pros and cons to that system that I don't need to get into that level of detail, but that I think the state system is known for being um, a really robust uh, public participation process and ownership by the local fishermen. Um, The federal process is uh, uh, the North Pacific Fishery Management Council. And again, that is, same council process that is used all over the country. I think that the uh, North Pacific Council has a reputation for being one of the strongest in the country. And one of the reasons for that was that early, early on, um, the council put a cap on how much fish they would permit to be harvested in the Bering Sea and Gulf of Alaska. And it was, it was below, it's generally below what the, um, total allowable catch that the the scientists will put forward, the researchers will put forward. So again, uh, both the state management and the federal management is very, very conservative. Um, and that works up here because there's uh, so much resource that uh, it, it, it seems like being conservative is a good approach to the fishermen. Um, so the, the council is a federal process. It has a little bit of a different regulatory public participation process, but it's also designed to do that. And, you know, I would say most fishermen um, play by the rules and they know what the rules are. They've got their eye on the next guy, making sure that he's playing by the rules. And um, uh, it's, you know, relatively uh, well carried out. Um, we have a really active Coast Guard up here that is uh, as well, well thought of, 
um, does a lot of fishing safety work, but also does some fisheries enforcement work. And um, so I think all in all, uh, it's a it's a pretty functional regulatory system, and we've seen the benefits from it. Um, I don't think, you know, this run of salmon in Bristol Bay that was so huge, largest run since 1883. Uh, I think the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, rightly so, took a fair amount of credit for how that turned out. Uh, I think there's lots of other reasons that that fishery um, is so large. The fact that there's almost zero habitat impact and um, no no destruction of salmon habitat in the freshwater stage and then apparently not so much in the ocean. Um, but I think the regulatory system definitely deserves some credit for the numbers that we've seen. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. That's quite a success story. And, and is that something that if people were really curious as to what steps went into um, that regulatory system, especially of the, of the salmon, is that something you think they could find online or, more information about? Because I think we're all looking for those good success stories to help us have some hope about some of the other things we're seeing. Yeah, I think certainly if you just uh, look up uh, Bristol Bay Salmon Run 2022, I mean, it's it was definitely a historic run um, uh, this year and you can find and catch and you can find information about that. I, You know, I think it it's uh, it's just nice to have it happen at the end of the COVID years. And I have to say that um, during COVID, uh, uh, Bristol Bay and other parts of the state um, was really the fishing industry and the seafood processing industry was one of the industries that managed to power through that uh, kind of bleak period when there were so many shutdowns and and uh, I have to give them credit for that because they, um, uh, the processing industry put huge amounts of money into keeping their workers safe and keeping their workers uh, away from community members and keeping their processing campuses closed. And, and the fishermen, I know we went out to Bristol Bay and hung out at our fishing site for two weeks before we, um, you know, interacted with anyone else and, People were very uh, took it very seriously, and and it paid off because um, everyone was able to keep fishing and keep processing seafood during that two year period. So I hope I hope you ate a lot of seafood then. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to pull my weight up here. I uh, I'm originally from the north, but being down here in Texas, you're never too far from seafood, and and I love it. It's it's been great, and I love that's a great example. Thank you because. Um, yeah, it seems like a lot of input had to be made, but in the end, like you said, it paid off and everyone was safe. So that's amazing. And and um, Trin- the other example of the king salmon and, and what's happening over there, when, when those types of um, events happen or there's got to be an emergency fish closer or they have to decrease stock numbers, um, are there support mechanisms or strategies that are employed to help um, the people that particularly fish those types of fish or, or anything when they can't get their catch size for the year or a couple of years? Are there other options or is it like you said, 
fishermen do a lot of different jobs there. So they kind of tend to lean on that. Yeah, that's a really good question, Ashley. And um, it really depends a lot on who you are and where you live in the state. But the the king salmon uh, issue is, I think, uh, the most um, the most difficult is uh, on the Yukon River. And uh, uh, as I said, I actually fished on the Yukon River in the early '80s for five years, and uh, uh, we used to catch. I don't know, 110,000 king salmon every year in our little district. Uh, beautiful fish. Um, some of the largest and richest king salmon, I think, in the world. And they go all the way 700 miles up into Canada to spawn. So they have a lot of oil and they're just beautiful animals. And um, uh, but, but along the Yukon River are uh, many, many, many small villages um, very, very high population of Alaska natives, either uh, Athabascan Indians or Yupik Eskimos and uh, hundreds and hundreds of families that depend on king salmon um, for their livelihood. I mean, they, they fish commercially as well. And it's nice to have income so that you can, you know, run your skiff and be able to go hunting and do what you need to do during the year. But really the the primary connection was, um, or the primary need of king salmon is for food. And um, and the last 10 years, there just have been almost no king salmon at all. So it's just that I I just can't overstate the uh, how, how impactful that has been for people on that river. And um, so the answer to that question, do we have safety nets for that? You know, not really. And it's been... Um, I mean, there's actually been efforts to to fly fish to the Yukon, but uh, it's a it's a very um, very difficult and sad situation, and um, I don't I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen and and what's really going on with the king salmon in the ocean. But um, you know, the bottom line in Alaska is that people really depend on fish for food. And so it's uh, jobs and employment and all of this, but the bottom line is food security. And for the, you know, for the hundreds of people that live on the Yukon River, they have really been thrown into kind of a food insecure system uh, situation. And and, um, I don't know that we as a state have done as much as we could or should uh, to try and help that situation. Certainly, yeah, and I'm sure some of it is is like you said, just not knowing what to do. There's a lot of uncertainties coming, but um, it also sounds like your state has done a lot to make sure that there are um, stocks and fish for future generations to pull from. Um, and I really appreciate you joining me today and providing insight into, you know, a state and a region that I don't think many of us have any knowledge of or any, any um, thoughts about, but putting your extension Sea Grant hat on for a minute. um, What are, you know, kind of leaving us with something, how can consumers uh, in the United States help to support the commercial industry? And that could be like buying seafood, but also maybe approaching their elected officials about certain things. What are what are some ways that consumers can be supportive? 
Well, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I think uh, uh, asking for Alaska seafood and buying it, of course, bottom line. And uh, I, I will put a little plug in for considering buying frozen fish because uh, I, I know that in general across the country, people have the attitude that fresh fish is the best fish. But uh, in some cases, if you uh, buy frozen fish or you uh, buy or you order fish in a restaurant that's been previously frozen, you know, just like vegetables. Uh, sometimes you're getting a better quality, um, a better quality fish. And for Alaska, you know, a lot of the fisheries that we have don't happen in the winter time, so you do see uh, frozen fish. Um, I wouldn't, you know, I just encourage people to um, not feel that that's less superior than than quote unquote fresh. Um, but of course, bigger picture, uh, you know, I, we have to deal with climate change and, um, you know, that's a, that's great to see what just happened in Congress that they passed a climate change bill finally, and we're going to reduce carbon emissions, uh, climate change impacts and, uh, ocean acidification impacts are of course huge when it comes to our, the health of our resource. And so anything that we as a country can do to um, to offset and, and slow down and and uh, address climate change is going to is going to be a positive impact on the future of our fishery resources. Yes, great, great insight. And and I think uh, for for uh, fish seafood buying, most often you'll find that there are labels to tell you where it's coming from, and which which fishery it's coming from. So certainly pay attention and look at labels if you want to support local and United States fisheries. Um, well, this has been very enlightening. Paula, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. Interesting to talk to you. Thanks. My next guest is Mark Duffy, a Chief Conservation Officer for the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians. We're very excited to have you on the show today, Mark. Thank you for joining us. Bonjour, this is Mark Duffy here. <laughs> Welcome. Um, so you're joining us from Wisconsin and you're going to be sharing uh, some insights on a topic that we haven't explored too much on the show and that's uh, the commercial fishing industry in the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians, so up in the tribal lands. Uh, can you start off by just giving us a background of, of what your job entails and your personal history with, with fishing in that region? Sure. So to give people an idea of where we're actually located, we're up on the shores of uh, Gichigumi Lake Superior on the northernmost reaches of uh, state of Wisconsin. Uh, I grew up in a background of uh, my father was a commercial fisherman, and so I was exposed to the activities of commercial fishing and come to realization that it's something that I did not necessarily want to do because of the hard work, but I wanted to do something with the natural resources, so I became a conservation officer. So instead of doing the activities of the commercial fishing now, I enforce the rules of commercial fishing activities for the Red Cliff Band. With that being said, I went to school. I graduated the police academy, came out and became a conservation officer for Red Cliff, and I have been doing this for approximately 30 years. Uh, with that, uh, my dad and my uncles 
have uh, worked in the industry from probably the early 60s to 70s. And stories have it all the way back to the 30s and 40s in fishing in the industry, or working in the fishing industry in uh, Bayfield, Wisconsin, and the the uh, fish packing plants that were down there back in those days. Wow, yeah, so quite extensive. Um, and I want to kind of get an idea from you about the fishery management up there between the tribe and state and federal level, but just to kind of give us, um, me and my audience, a context, what are some of the the biggest challenges uh, that the working waterfronts up there face? And this could be anything from climate change to um, not having access to the water to not having the proper resources or enough capacity as far as people. So you, you opened up a, a large question there, and I'll, I'll address some of the issues. So what we're having up here is our industry up here is relatively small. We have uh, 10 large boats that work the Wisconsin waters and four boats that work the Minnesota, I'm sorry, Michigan waters of Lake Superior. The industry itself is a younger industry now where it was used to be made up of older generations. Now the new generations underneath them are taking over. So our our age categories are in the 30s to 50 range versus the old school was, you know, the 60s to 80 range. Um, the new generation come up, uh, do not want to work commercial fishing because it's so dang difficult. Weather-related market, if it's good or bad, you know, the seasons you got to be out there. You can't take a day off unless you pull all your gear out. So the one of the big threats we have in this is the younger generations don't necessarily want to take up commercial fishing. And the opportunity to become a commercial fisherman to make an actual living at it is extremely rare. So in our area, unless you're part of the family and basically inherit the fishing license and gear that go with it from family members, there's rarely an opportunity to break into this field. Of course, like all places, docking is an issue. We do have our own dock on the reservation here, and we do have a dock um, down in the Bayfield, which is just a few miles away. Um, those are always issues because docking is a premium nowadays. And commercial fishermen, you know, we're running uh, boats in the neighborhood of for our big boats, you know, 35 to uh, 55 feet. Uh, our primary gear up here is gill nets. Uh, we do use trap nets on occasion, but it's not a preferred gear. It is an option. Again, the cost of trap net gear and stuff is usually uh, discouraging when somebody's trying to break into that type of an industry from a gill net versus a trap net. Gill net uh, roughly runs about a dollar to a dollar and a half a foot. Uh, trap net, uh, you know, you start off at $10,000 and work your way up. And that's not including the tugs and other gear and space you need for those things. Um, so one of the big industries we have is the next generation is coming up wanting to become fishermen. That's an issue. Uh, one of the biggest factors that we have up here, in my opinion, of course, I'm not a biologist, uh, is climate change. And the aspect of what does that do for us in the generations to come? So we look at fishing up here as an industry that is for seven generations and beyond. So it's very long term. Uh, with that, we have um, 
biologist from the state of Wisconsin. Uh, the two tribes that we're involved with is Red Cliff and Bad River. Uh, those three biologists get together and they make the quotas for the for um, the waters of Lake Superior in Wisconsin, and then that's split up amongst us. And then we have a large enforcement concept and monitoring of our commercial fishing activities to make sure they stay within their quotas on that industry. Uh, so there's a lot of biological sampling that goes on to come up with those figures. Now we share our waters with hook and line fishermen. So there's a portion of that has to go over to those. We have a small home use fisheries where people would just take that home to eat uh, with gill nets. And um, we got to take all those things in consideration. Yeah, yeah. And and you work uh, well with the other entities, the biologists and stuff. And depending on what kind of information and data they find from their assessments, um, do you have to abide by whatever uh, catchment size that they establish? Or is there some other process that you guys do yourself to kind of assess what should be um, what you should catch for the year and what we should leave back? So as I stated, we're looking at seven generations beyond. So what we use is the biological sampling, uh, not only what the state of Wisconsin does, but what the two tribes also do. So with a combined effort, we come up with a quota system. And we had, and over the years, they have adjusted the gear. So for our industry, our primary species that we're looking for is uh, whitefish. And our, our uh, protocol is it has to be a minimum of 17 inches to be able to be sold, to put on the market. With that being said, our gear has been modified through the generations to very specifically catch that size fish or bigger. Um, the bycatch we have is lean lake trout. Uh, the gear also then isn't geared real well at catching lake trout. So if they when they do catch lake trout, it does do damage to the gear. So people usually don't try to get the lake trout in their gear because it tears it up. Um, the whitefish is their primary target. Our, seems to be a population that's very sustainable, the whitefish population up here. It's really what uh, governs the major market we have. Uh, the byproduct, which is lean lake trout, is our quota system. And we do uh, two different types of monitoring of our quota system. First, we have a uh, sample size of gear that is... Uh, monitored and tells them that they catch X amount of fish per 1,000 feet of gear. So an example would be uh, if a fisherman had 500 tags to go fishing and we say he's catching 10 lean lake trout per 1,000 foot of gear per, per this particular season, our season broke up into a couple different seasons, then we know he has X amount of gear that he can be fishing at one time or he can run out of tags because he's required to tag all his lean lake trout. So the bycatch governs our whitefish fisheries. Oh, interesting. That's, I don't know if I've heard of that before. And are there, so the bycatch, uh, are there strategies or anything you guys implement to try and reduce uh, the amount of bycatch that you get or is that just a really important aspect of, of management? And it's, it's very important they manage that and they do have different ways to stay away from that. Uh, just like any other 
species that is fished. There's certain areas that uh, they conjugate in, and the fishermen stay out of those areas. There are certain areas that the trout use for spawning, uh, and those are restricted areas or refuges. So we're managing all that. And, of course, nowadays our gear has evolved to the point where our fishermen don't want to catch those, but they, you know, you sometimes you just can't stay away from them. Uh, so it's, they don't want to damage their gear by catching those species. They know through the history that we have had with our fishing industry, and these people, most of them are out there now, are the next generation. So it's several generations of fishermen to come to the point of today. Uh, they know where not to be during certain times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and is that, is there a way of, of knowledge transfer? Is there um, something that is used to help fishermen or even new fishermen in the industry to to understand those aspects or know where to go? Or is that kind of just those kept secrets they keep to themselves? It's, it's all of the above. Okay. Uh, most of the fishermen that come in are not new fishermen. They have been working on the boats with relatives, fathers, uncles, brothers, sisters. So they already know a little bit of the inf- information. A lot of fishermen, just like uh, what they all say, is have their little black book. So they've written things down. They have, have a diary of where things were, what they are. Uh, don't go here. Lots of sticks over there. They have these little things in their books, you know. Don't go over here. The whitefish aren't here during this time. You should go try this spot during this time of the month at this depth. So all these things are out there. Is it something that a person, a layman from outside can come in and see? No. You have to have that connection with the industry itself, with the participants of that. So a new person would only learn by participating or having close contacts with somebody that has that type of knowledge. Uh, it's it's shared, but it's not freely shared. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. It seems like a lot of a lot of things in the in the fishing realm is is just not freely shared, but kind of insiders get a get a an idea of where they need to go, what needs to happen, and as part of that, um, there are historical numbers of you know the whitefish that you depend on, and um, how has if you can speak to this the uh, species, um, I guess been able to thrive um, over the past decades? Have you noticed a decline or an increase in the species that has been significant and kind of changed management styles? So the we go to the management styles of the refuges and stuff like that as has increased their bycatch, which is lake trout, which is really a concerning concept for everybody that's in this industry because the bycatch governs your whitefish um, catch. But what we're seeing up here is our catch rates of overall harvest of whitefish is actually increasing in our area. So our white pit fish population seems doing very well. Uh, along with our lake trout population, it is on an increase, incline going up uh, from the uh, devastation we had back here in Lake Superior back in the uh, late 30s, early 40s when sea lamprey was introduced. Not introduced, but made its way here, uh, it took out a lot of the population of lake trout that was up here. And we're still recovering from that. Uh, we're in pretty good shape 
But, you know, uh, the biologists tell us we'd like to be a little bit better shape. And I agree with that. Yeah, it's always it's always good to be in in a better situation. And so on top of the sea lamprey, I mean, what other types of invasive species are you dealing with up there? And if you can speak to any of the strategies that are going into trying to control that issue. So sea lamprey is probably our primary function. Uh, we have multiple agencies, federal, state, uh, tribal, that are doing different things with sea lamprey from trapping to using a, uh, a, a chemical that only, at only attacks the larval sea lamprey uh, to removing the adults right from the spawning grounds because they have a longer spawning time. Uh, those things are really in the works right now and probably will be forever. Uh, we have other species that we're, we're not, we're concerned with and they're creating a problem for us. Uh, we have a little fish called the rough out here. Uh, it looks like a little perch. It's real picky. Uh, it's really taking over our shoreline areas. We have a goby. We have a bunch of exotic uh, plants that are coming around. Not too much in the lake itself, but along the shoreline. We have a rusty crayfish, a zebra mussel. That's just to name a few. Um, the, all those things are a concern for us. And why we have such an influx of these exotics recently, in my opinion, I would say is it's, it probably has something to do with climate change. Maybe Lake Superior warmed up just a couple of half a degrees, a couple degrees here, a quarter degree there. And it opened that door just a little bit for these other species to start to survive and move in these areas. Versus the past where Lake Superior was such a cold lake, a lot of these species had, didn't have much of a hold up here if they were here at all. In most of the cases, they were never here because they could survive here. Oh, yeah. And and that's kind of an alarming thing to, to realize, um, I'm sure, in your industry and as a group to, to see that happening. And... As far as uh, as your working waterfronts and your accessibility to the water, is that something that is protected and prioritized up in your region? Are your are your waterfronts diversified in the way that they um, allow for the commercial industry to come in and also process and store fisheries? What are kind of the get an idea of like the status of your working waterfront up there? Yeah. So we, we have a couple of different things here going on. Um, our industry is a little bit of a choke down where we used to have several markets available to us, and now we have just a few. Uh, dock space is uh, always a premium issue up here, where you can have it, where you can't have it. Uh, you're very limited to the spots that would they would allow a commercial fishing vessel. Um those kind of things. And then our lakefront itself is a contagious little thing that we have to deal with all the time because we're always concerned with new development. So somebody's personal dock, some commercial dock or something of that nature going in, what is that going to do with the uh, water flow and spawning grounds in the vicinity of those? So does somebody want their personal dock put in in this area what will that do with that shoreline? So we're real reluctant up here to add extra dockage along Lake Superior uh, for fear of changing the habitat of the shoreline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and do the extreme fluctuations in 
the lake levels um, that happened there, is that is that a consideration or has that been an obstacle for the industry up there? The water levels really isn't that big of an uh, obstacle short of what that does to our shorelines, what that does to the shoreline reefs that the uh, fish spawn on. Those kind of things are things we don't know really what's going to happen in the short term or even the long term. We do know that with the higher water levels, we have more erosion on a few of our our shorelines. Um, but water levels usually aren't as big a deal as water temperatures and uh, a lot of the exotics that are out there now. You know, in my opinion with the exotics, every exotic species that's out there, everything that it eats is what's less one less thing a native species could be eating. And it doesn't seem like a lot of these uh, native species tend to lean towards the exotic species as part of their food source. It takes them a long time to adapt to that other species as a food source. Yeah. Um, so as far as if, uh, if you can speak to maybe the market, the market that you guys um, sell to or what are the types of people or industries that the fish that are caught in the Lake Superior going to? Do you know? So the majority of the fish that are caught in Lake Superior go to that plate on a restaurant or somebody's home meal. So the most of our fish are put into that tourism dollar, into the uh, feast for at home, so that a lot of it's a flea market. And then um, the fish that uh, most of it is sold locally, and what isn't sold locally usually hits the Chicago market and is distributed from there. Um, the fish from Lake Superior is very clean, so it's a, it's a desired fish, but you need to break into that market of who's going to buy it and where. Right now, we're mostly a local market is our best market, and then we do have shipping going on, but not a lot of it. Oh, not a lot of shipping in and out. Is that is that always been the case, or is that recent? Um, that has uh, been more of a case recent because our population and tourists are, are coming up stronger up this way. Uh, we're rural, rural up here in northern Wisconsin, so the more tourists that come up, the more we can sell locally for those uh, fish fries and so forth. And then uh, the Chicago market and so forth, that's always been there. And it's one of those things to utilize that fish before it becomes a waste of some sorts or has to be smoked. Um, so if we have a little over harvest of fish that our local market can't take care of, we can ship it out and keep them out them open also. Uh, it's always good to have our fish marketed all over the place because once they try our whitefish and lake trout from Lake Superior, they will be hooked. I have no doubt. I, um, and so for our, our listeners in Chicago area and stuff, that's something that they could maybe pursue or look into or ask their restaurants if, if this is fish that comes from Lake Superior and up. Um, we're always trying to encourage people to to eat as much local and uh, seafood from the United States as possible. So that's a good that's a good plug there. Um, so you had mentioned earlier about um, kind of the average age of your fishermen and that a lot of the younger generation begrudgingly isn't 
quite entering the field um, as maybe their parents and grandparents did. Um, is there a, a shortage of, of workers and hands in this industry, or is that something that you guys are looking to for the future? So for this industry, we're always short a few hands. Uh, it's seasonal, of course. Uh, it's not day-to-day operations all the time. Some days you're going to work seven days a week, and other times you might only work three days a week. Uh, the aspect of it's very difficult work, uh, usually early morning is is almost a must. You know, 5.36 o'clock, you got to get started. Uh, that kind of thing. And the, the age category of this younger generations, they don't like getting up in the morning, and they don't like working that hard, uh, you know, even though their afternoons might be free. So the aspect of having employees on their fish teams is difficult, but it's also, I understand, not not a job for everyone because it's it basically what they say is feast or famine. You know, if you go out five times this week and you're getting your, your daily wage, you made good money. But if you only went out three times, you only made average money, but you worked your butt off. So those kind of things are there. So unless it's part of the family, usually not too many people try this industry and stick to it. Uh, as a employer, uh, usually you have the license and you're looking to hire two to three people at the most. Most time it's two. And then you want somebody as a backup. So a lot of people don't want to work that hard. And a lot of people don't want to have that seasonal type work, whether they're going to work five days or three days this week, you know, or during this season, I need you all seven days. It's a lot of work and not a lot of the younger generation want to do that. And and that's an issue that we've been hearing all around the country. And so I have two kind of questions for you in the similar vein as far as in light of that, are there any programs or anything that um, – the tribe or even the state is doing to try and encourage younger fishermen? And if not, or even if so, are you seeing any different type of active players out on the water, different type of people taking up that mantle? Okay, I'll answer that question in a second because I'm going to step back one to the Chicago market. The Chicago market then then ships that fish all over the world. Uh, you know, at times, I've been in Florida and been able to catch catch a restaurant that had Lake Superior whitefish in it. And I was very proud to be down there in a whole other state that's a long ways from us and see Lake Superior whitefish. And uh, it was enjoyable to have that on a vacation and go and eat fish that's right back in my, home, my hometown. And so I always try to have people buy locally and at least buy uh, fish products and stuff within the states. And for the aspect of the workers coming into the industry, uh, we do have a couple of different ways we try to do stuff. We have a few youth programs up here, and we expose them to the commercial fishing industry uh, to show them what it's about, show them how it is, show them uh, the fun you could have out there, the money you could make, and then also show them the hardship. So you got to show them both. Uh, we also put on a couple of events with the local school here that we go out and show them the small size of that commercial fishing, which is construed as a home-use fisheries, where you're going out and you're setting a 100-foot net to a 300-foot net. You're catching between one and, say, a dozen fish 
most of the time it's three or four. Uh, And we show the youth from our school district that so they can experience it. And then they can decide whether they want to potentially pursue that or maybe they want to pursue something into the biological side of things or the enforcement side because all them parts are part of it. So it's one of those things where although it's commercial fishing, there's a broad scale of employment with that commercial fisherman. They have to have biologists. They have to have enforcement. They have to have somebody who processes. They need to have somebody who markets their fish. So all these parts come in. You know, They need a bookkeeper basically an accountant of some sorts. It's not truly an accountant because usually it's a family member who does the books for them and makes sure everything's right. We're not that big of an industry. You know, our income isn't hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars per fisherman. You know, they make a living and they handle some money, but a lot of it gets pushed out for uh, repairs, wages for their employees that they have, which is two, usually two, maybe three. And then uh, the cost of running the boat and the upkeep of the gear and stuff. So they make a decent living, but by no means are they getting rich. Yeah, yeah. A lot of hard work and and a good, honest living. And um, were there some challenges or did the market change through the pandemic? So with the pandemic up here, it became tighter. Uh, when you're reliant on a restaurant market for the majority of your catch, and now people are not going out to eat, not traveling, not going on vacation. So there was a, a tough time there up here for our um, fishermen during that pandemic. We still fished a little, but by no means was it uh, easy or uh, great to get rid of the product when you caught it. So. You fished a couple days and you had to take a break while the market got flooded for the local market. And then you go back again. So instead of making that four or five day wages, maybe you're only making two. Yeah. So it's tough hardships as well. And and are there other, I guess if you can speak to this, um, employment opportunities or types of work that – those people explore if they're having a bad year or if there are some issues that they can't um, they can't fix, so they need to find income somehow? Yeah, so that is one thing they, that they are. Because they are such hard workers, um, the older generation would just go on the mend, meaning they would bend all their gear, catch up on repairs, and so forth during the lean times. Of course, you could have money for that. The new generation now... Um, seek other short-term employment. Uh, so maybe they're going to take a painting job someplace where they're going to go paint somebody's house for a day or two, or they're going to go cut somebody's grass or go cut down a couple of trees or what, something of that nature. Very labor-intensive type jobs that are good for one or two days or so. Those are the type of jobs that the, the fishermen sought, went out to look for during those leaner times. Uh Maybe they took up construction work for a few days to help out another relative. We're a small community up here, so you usually have somebody that's looking for an extra hand that's willing to work from time to time, but I can't put you to work all the time. So our fishermen went out and sought those small-type jobs just to bridge that gap and make sure that they had some income coming in during those lean times. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like an adaptable group of people. And I'm sorry if you've already mentioned it, but do you know how many um, 
active boats you have in the in the industry right now? So right now we have a total of 14 boats that are construed as big boats in Redcliffe. Uh, that represents uh, 14 licenses that are trying to make a uh, year t- year round income, and most of those are partnered up. So reality comes down to we have five or six active boats, you know, but the other ones are just kind of set on the side waiting because, again, it's easier to get another commercial fisherman to partner up with you because you have uh, that second set of hands that you need to do this industry. And two of you is going out on one tug versus one of you is struggling to find employment or find employees. So a lot of them partner up and do that. So when it comes right down to it, you know, although we we are capable of having 14 big boats out there trying to make a living year round, reality of it is we have about seven or eight active fishermen, active fishing tugs out there with two or three or more fishing fishermen on that tug. We also have a small number of uh, what they call small boat fishermen. So they might get a couple hundred tags and they will fish for a very short time you know, set a net here, set a net there, that would uh, subsidize their income from someplace else. You don't make money on the small boaters. They don't really make money. But when they uh, they can go out there and make two, $300 on a, on a set that they set out there out of a 14-foot boat or 16-foot boat, you know, that's enough. That's enough for that day. Yeah, yeah. And so certainly a lot of... Um fishing and going out there for subsistence purposes even. So our subsistence fisheries, we have probably uh, in the neighborhood of, say, 10 families, and they will go set a 100 to 300-foot net, and they'll come back in, as I indicated before, you know, uh, one to a dozen fish, most of the time three or four fish, and that that buys them a meal or two or a gift to the uh, extended family. So it's all that's all good stuff. Yeah, and and correct me if I'm wrong. I think we talked about this, but there's um, a limited and only a set amount of uh, permits. Is it? It's either permits or license. You get permits. License, license. license. Okay. Well, it's basically the same. So, 14 big boat licenses, which are trying to make a living year-round uh, fishing commercially on Lake Superior, and then we have a small boat. Uh, licensees that uh, is not necessarily limited, but we usually average about anywhere from 15 to 30 at the most any given year. And they only get a few tags to go out there and fish. And they are just doing something to keep the tradition alive and make a little bit of money on the side from time to time. Uh, then we have our small boat fishermen, which are not small, our home use fishermen that are just going out there, just what it says, catching a few fish for, for the home or extended families to have a meal or two from time to time. And they said very few, very few, little nets and catch very few fish, but it's enough to satisfy them to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, either way, it sounds like you have a small but, but mighty force up there that's working very hard to to bring this resource and this product to market and to people. And uh, I, I'm glad we could highlight that here because hopefully our listeners can, can start to seek that out more. Um, but, you know, since we're talking about sustainability and, and resilience of the industry, um, in your opinion, of course, uh, do you feel like the, the systems and regulations you have set up now, the, the checks and balances you have set up now, is, 
is going to be successful in, in helping the, your industry and the particular fisheries up there to sustain for generations? So I, I actually believe it will. Uh, that's the ultimate goal, you know, seven generations and beyond. And with the systems that we have in place, the quota systems, the extreme monitoring that everybody does uh, from actually uh, going out there and seeing how much gear is set where and making sure that all that gear that's uh, set out there is reported properly, uh, having monitors on the vessels from time to time and counting every fish that comes over and into that boat, uh, having a tagging system, having checks and balances for that. I think we're in a they're very good track to make sure that this is a sustainable fisheries for seven, generation, seven generations and beyond. Yeah, and I'm really happy to hear that that your, you know, fisheries, the whitefish there is is doing so well. Um, it, well, Mark, I really appreciate you having on the show. I think you've given us a great perspective into, like I said, an industry in a region that a lot of people aren't too familiar with. I doubt many people across the country even knew there was a commercial fishing industry up in the Great Lakes. Um, and I just, before we leave, if there's anything else uh, you want to speak or highlight about the work, the industry, um, the tribe up there, anything, uh, any other lasting thoughts you have? You know, this, this up here is fantastic country to come visit. Come visit us. Come and try our products. Uh, if you're out there, I strongly encourage you to buy fish from Lake Superior and try it. See how it's about. Uh of course, always buy local codfish or outdoor products, you know, gardens and so forth. Uh, and also purchase things from small enterprises. That's what's really going to help our small communities survive. You know, whether it's a fishing industry, a farmer, uh, apple, apple orchard, or whatever it happens to be. If you buy locally, that supports everybody in that industry. It supports all these mom and pop concepts. And... We hope someday you'll all be able to come up here and visit us here in Red Cliff in northern Wisconsin. Wonderful. Well said. Thank you. And and of course, as if you keep your if you buy locally, you keep your money local and you benefit from it, of course. Um, Mark, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. I appreciate it. Miigwech and we'll see you again someday. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Thanks again to our amazing guests, Paula Cullingbird and Mark Duffy. And if you're a seafood lover, I hope this episode inspired you to explore fresh, diverse options from our many and varied commercial fisheries. We will be back soon with the next installment of our Resilient and Sustainable Commercial Fisheries series. Until then, support local and check out all the other great podcasts at the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share it with all of your friends. As always, you can learn more about the National Working Waterfront Network at their website, nationalworkingwaterfronts.com. Mm-hmm.